Hello, welcome to my podcast, A Parallel, The Chinese Culture Revolution and the French Revolution. This is episode 10, Revolutions Cannot Be Made. In the last episode, I spoke about the fallout from the king's execution in France. The war with Europe grinded on. The Committee of Public Safety sprung into existence. In China, Chairman Mao launched another campaign called One Strike and Three Antis. The final saga of Lin Biao was mentioned, ending in his death. And finally, China had reached out to the United States. In this episode, I want to get deeper into the details of the wars, or what was called collectively, the wars of the Vendee and the insurrection, counter-revolution that occurred in France between the years 1792 and 1794. Also in this episode, Queen Marie Antoinette will meet the same fate as her husband. The reign of terror begins. In China, President Richard Nixon pays a visit. And I want to discuss that impactful event in a little bit of detail. This episode's quote is from Wendell Phillips, American abolitionist. Quote, you cannot make a revolution, they come. End of quote. I mentioned in the last episode a little bit about the insurrections, rebellions, counter-revolutions that had gripped France throughout 1793. These were significant events, and while complicated... After all, whole books have been done on this subject. Does deserve further discussion. Counter-revolutions were occurring all over France. None more larger and written about than the activities collectively known as the Wars of the Vendee. It is estimated some 200,000 perished from these wars, which, by the way, was far more deaths than was caused by the guillotine during the Reign of Terror. The violence from these wars would last until roughly 1796. The Wars of the Vendee refers to the counter-revolution insurrection that took place in the west of France, and they began in the spring of 1793. It was largely a rural region, about 300 miles southwest of Paris. The region contained no major cities and was inhabited mostly by farmers and peasants. 
It was a religious area, and they were loyal to the church. The region never shared with their fellow countrymen in France the same enthusiasm for the French Revolution. It is generally understood the region rebelled after the execution of King Louis XVI. The area was offended by the assembly's treatment of the king and the church. The region was also not happy about the conscription acts in 1793, the high land taxes, and the expansion of the revolution into Europe. All of these reasons gave cause for the large-scale insurrections. By the end of 1793, the chaos and resistance had been crushed by the Revolutionary Army. However, the region saw brutal repression, terror, and recriminations until the year 1796. Finally, in February 1795, the Convention of La Chouanet granted the Vendée region freedom from conscription, freedom and indemnified them. For several months, In 1793, many in France were calling for perceived traitors to be tried, along with Queen Marie Antoinette. Maximilien Robespierre, at first, was against these trials, in his opinion, empty gestures at that point in the Revolution. In early September 1793, however, there was news of a plot to free her. That sealed her fate. Even Robespierre by then realized there was no choice, and he reconsidered his view. Her trial began October 3, 1793. And on October 17th, two weeks later, the former Queen of France met the same fate as her husband about nine months earlier. In late 1971 and early 1972, it was clear why Mao Zedong was relaxing controls and rekindling severed relationships with party officials. President Richard Nixon was coming to the People's Republic of China. Indeed, following the 1971 ping-pong diplomacy, there were encouraging signs things were changing in China for the better. Entire cities were being spruced up. Propaganda was removed. Anti-American graffiti was eliminated. New paint was applied to some of the older, iconic, classical buildings in Beijing and Shanghai. Trees were planted. Streets and shops throughout China changed back to their pre-Cultural Revolution names. Red was no longer the dominant color. New colors were incorporated, sky blue, cream, and apple green. Thousands of Mao statues were removed. Soldiers guarding facilities continued to do so, but without bayonets in their rifles. Damage done to public parks and streets by the Red Guards had been repaired. Even Chairman Mao was spruced up, put on a new regime of medication to bolster his health, in appearance. 
Richard Nixon was the first United States president to visit the People's Republic of China. The meetings began in Beijing on February 21, 1972. They would last a week, and he would visit Beijing and Shanghai. Nixon heralded the meetings as a, quote, journey for peace, unquote. Aside from the numerous photo ops and fine meals from the visit, it all culminated in a document called the Shanghai Communique, issued February 28, 1972. It was perhaps the most important development from the China visit. Several issues and goals were expressed in that communique. The nations pledged to work together toward normalization of their relations. Neither country could seek hegemony in the Asia-Pacific region. And the CCP was recognized as the sole legal government of China. By far, however, the most important item from the communique was the notion of the One China Policy. That is, the United States acknowledged that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Straits were one, and that Taiwan was a part of China. In July 1793 was the Jacobins' low point in its fight against the Republic's enemies. All of the military news then was bad. The European coalition by then had firmly established themselves at Flanders and along the Pyrenees. France started to see some of its troops surrender. The Committee of Public Safety, while not the official and declared nation's chief executive, operated as such. At the top of this episode, I told you about the insurrections in France at this this time, particularly in the Vendée region. But there were other areas that were also trouble. Marseille and Normandy were problems. Lyons, however, France's second largest city, had managed to defy the revolution longer than any other area. The Committee of Public Safety vowed to bring lions into line by force and violence, if necessary. On October 12, 1793, the Assembly decreed that the city should be destroyed. A little over a month later, on November 17, a special tribunal of seven was created to speed up the persecutions or prosecutions of those arrested in lions. Many were condemned to death. So many so that the guillotine was unable to keep up with the executions. In early December 1793, many of the condemned Federalists were simply sent to their graves in mass by cannon fired grape shot. By April 1st, 1794, 880 Lyonnais had been condemned. As for the town, It was nearly destroyed and was in ruins. One of the first acts 
by the Committee of Public Safety was to get the insurrections under control. Those rebels, known as Federalists, became some of the first victims of the reign of terror. Remember that the Assembly had passed a special levée en masse for that purpose, and terror was chosen as the chief weapon. Also, the National Assembly passed a series of laws to combat the rebellions. On September 17, 1793, she passed the Law of Suspects. It was sweeping legislation that gave the authority to arrest anyone, either by their conduct or their contacts, their words or writings that showed themselves to be supporters of tyranny, federalism, or to be enemies of liberty, or just being a noble who had not shown sufficient support for the revolution. As is obvious, anyone could potentially violate the overbroad and vague edict And maybe that was the point. Anyone would be suspect for merely failing to address another person properly. On September 29, 1793, the Assembly then passed another law called the General Maximum Law. The new law placed price controls on many items that were defined as a necessity. Specifically, those items were food, clothing, drink, fuel, and tobacco. Anyone caught selling those items above the maximum price would become suspects, and the list of suspects rapidly grew. Also notable from the fall of 1793, many of the leading firebrands that caused the Paris uprisings that summer were arrested. There had been some discussion for a while in the assembly about whether or not to delay the implementation of the new constitution and government. By early October, the assembly chose to delay the constitution's implementation on the basis the revolution was still ongoing. And so begins perhaps the most famous stage of the French Revolution, the Reign of Terror. For the next nine months, about... 15 to 30,000 people would lose their lives to the guillotine. Europe watched in macabre and horrified fascination. For sure, some sentenced to death during that period did not all die by the guillotine. Some chose suicide. Bali, remember him, the mayor of Paris, in the opening months of the revolution, would find the guillotine for his role in the Champs de Mars incident. Lafayette, likely, would have met the same fate, but he was then a war prisoner somewhere in Austria. By late 1793, early 1794, many radicals were rethinking the revolution's purpose and goals. After all, they had accomplished much of their agenda. After nearly two years of revolutionary vigilance and tension, the sans-culottes were nearing exhaustion. I suppose it was inevitable that they would wear down and grow weary. And by early 1794, pressure began to mount 
for a less savage way of running the country. Max Miller Robespierre had come to this view by then. By the summer of 1794, he became obsessed with cleaning up the republic of corrupt people as well as anyone, falling short of his exacting standard of virtue. By then, the early revolution radicals, Danton, Desmoulins, and others, had already been executed by the guillotine. The reasons for their demise, not entirely clear. Unofficially, it seems for insurrection. Their deaths did mark another turning point in the terror era. It now seemed clear that you could be executed for their, for their potential to commit a crime or for the failure to meet an ideal moral standard. That's horrifying. Long story short, eventually everyone turned on Robespierre. On July 29, 1794, he was either shot or he shot himself in the jaw while being arrested in Paris. He went to the guillotine the next day, followed by a long cheer of the audience. The supporters of Robespierre followed him to the guillotine, some 80 of them. Maximilian Robespierre was executed because many felt he was striving for tyranny and a dictatorship. Although the evidence suggests otherwise, his demise probably had more to do with the fear he was going to destroy his accusers, so they destroyed him first. After his death, for a long time, he was scapegoated as the cause of the reign of terror, that it was his idea. In the final tally, ordinary middle-class citizens were the largest class of victims from the reign of terror. There were several agendas in play with Richard Nixon's visit. For the United States and China, an alliance between the two would be counter to a perceived Soviet threat. The United States hoped she could peel away China from Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union and the Communist bloc. You know, divide and conquer. A global realignment. Additionally, the United States was hoping for China's help in resolving the Vietnam quagmire. For China, a visit by a United States president had huge propaganda value. The reality, however, arguably, was different. Many nations saw the Nixon visit as a United States defeat. In Korea, its leader, Kim Il-sung, saw the trip as a surrender by the United States. Other, other Asian nations saw the United States as a paper tiger. Certainly, for the Soviet Union, the United States' visit to China was a blow, and it set off a chain reaction. European, Latin American, African, and Asian leaders all used the Nixon trip as the opening to seek recognition with China. Even Japan came the United States' big Asian ally. I have to ask, did they know at that time about the Shanghai communique? 
Nothing immediate came out of Nixon's meeting with Chairman Mao. The diplomatic relations, however, between China and the United States would take several years to mature. President Nixon found that Mao was not willing to compromise over Vietnam. After Nixon's visit, China continued to support the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. While Nixon was hoping the China meeting would send a message to the North Vietnamese, that is, encourage them to deal with the United States now that the U.S. had the Soviet Union and China's better graces. Bear in mind that China was responsible for supporting the North Vietnamese, that it already killed tens of thousands of American soldiers, and also was responsible for collateral damage to civilian populations, many hundreds of thousands. Some have criticized President Nixon for not seeking aggressively an end to the Vietnam War with China. Instead, their argument goes, Nixon was more concerned with the United States' geopolitical position and supremacy. Ultimately, China got from Nixon nearly everything she asked. The decision to bring China out of isolation came with costs. The most immediate and obvious cost was Taiwan. Another was the continuation of the Vietnam War and the additional loss of American and Vietnamese lives. China nor Mao Zedong were forced to renounce anything or stop aiding the North Vietnamese. After Lin Biao's death, the Chinese army lost its prominent role in the Cultural Revolution. By August 1972, many of the top army leaders had resigned. Effectively, they were no longer needed, so they took advantage of the lower military role. As a result, Mao Zedong had no choice to bring back persons he had condemned or criticized previously to run the government apparatus. These rehabbed leaders, if you will, however, were not the same people they were before Mao had earlier demoted or cast them away. These men had learned that political mistakes with Mao were costly. No one was willing to stray too far from the party, or Chairman Mao, orthodoxy. Everyone was paralyzed by fear of the next political campaign. China's economic recovery from the Cultural Revolution was slow at best, or dead at the worst. State industries were stagnant, stagnant, suffering from low productivity. Factory workers became apathetic. Discipline was lacking. Resources ill-used. Workers stole from their employers. Work output was abysmal. Quality was substandard. Factories, compounding the problem, could not turn a profit and no one seemed to care. The inability of the planned Chinese economy to fulfill even basic demands of the nation had reached their lowest levels. Shortages started to become an issue. In 1972, toothbrushes, buttons, and matches were considered luxuries. 
cooking oil, and meat were rationed to no more than three ounces per person each month. This is where I will leave things in this episode. Next episode, please continue to listen. Thank you. It has been my pleasure.